praise God, that was, that was so much fun. <laughs> Sing to the Lord. And I got emotional. Wow, that was a blessing to think of those words. Thank you, Jorge and Jessica. Welcome to our church. It's their first Sunday, and, uh, and I think I could sing all day long. So let's look forward to doing that the rest of the year. Um, sing to the Lord. And I hope, church, and pray that you will reach out to them and invite them into your home, into the, your life. And uh, maybe today we all need to go back and take naps after we got up really early this morning. But So maybe you start next week on that. I don't know. But give them a, a break of a week here. But Well, how to not get eaten by the lion, but thrive as God's sheep. In 2018, there was a story in the New York Post about a man who owned a lion preserve in South Africa. His name was Mike Hodge. And in May of that year, a video of him went viral on the internet. It showed him in this lion preserve, and he went through the gate, and he came in to check out something that was going on in there. And there was a lion in the distance, and you can see it in the camera. He's in the distance there, and he looks like he's peaceful. He looks like he's happy. This guy, Mike, was the guy who fed him, you know, so of course he's supposed to love his owner there. And the man, Mike, turned around to go into the gate, and when he turned around, this lion crept up and pounced and grabbed him by the shoulder and began to drag him to the back of the preserve. It was a gruesome video. I don't recommend watching it, unless you like to see that kind of thing, I guess. It shows the power and the terror of a lion. Here was a man who was oblivious to the danger around him, although he probably shouldn't have been, right? I mean, he was in a lion preserve. He was oblivious to this danger, and when he turned his back, the lion's instinctive nature switched on, and it attacked him. In 1 Peter 5, 8, the Bible says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I'm afraid many Christians in churches like ours live their lives like Mike. They're spiritually oblivious to the danger of the lion, Satan, and his pride of celestial underlings that prowl around to devour spiritually lazy and oblivious Christians. I've titled my sermon, How to Not Get Eaten by the Lion but thrive as God's sheep. In 1 Peter 5 here, what we see is Peter presents a picture of the church as a flock of sheep and the chief shepherd as Jesus Christ, or Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd. And the chief shepherd appoints under shepherds, that's pastors, that's elders, to care for his flock. In our text today, in verses 8 and 9, so we're going to so we're gonna beat it this morning, 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9 the Holy Spirit warns the church that there is this lion, there is this adversary who is stalking the church. He's stalking the spiritual sheep of God's flock, and he wants to gobble up their faith. Of course, this is all imagery that's to help us to understand the spiritual danger that we are in, and also what we should do about it. Satan's goal is to oppose God. That's his number one goal in this world, to oppose God. And he does that by going after God's people, God's sheep. 
He also does that by going after people in this world and blinding them to the truth of the gospel of Jesus. But what better way to oppose God than to keep unbelievers on the side of Satan and to try to pull believers to the side of Satan through pride? In fact, we've looked down in 1 Peter 5, 5, the end of that verse, we've talked about this the past couple weeks. The scripture says, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so 1 Peter 5, 8, 9, our text this morning, Peter puts us on the alert that the king of pride, the author of pride, Satan himself, is after us. And what what does he use to attack us? He tempts us with what? With pride. Satan is an angel. He was created to be a perfect, glorious, celestial servant of God. He's one being. He's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He's just one being. But he was created in the beginning as a blameless angel, the highest of all angels, an anointed chair, the most beautiful of all God's creation. But yet he desired to have the same glory as God. He, in a sense, wanted to kick God off his throne and take it from him. And and the point is, is that Satan, he is the author of pride. He's the king of pride. He's the one that started it all. The Bible describes the heart of Satan in Isaiah 14, 13 and 14. You said, speaking to Satan, in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly In the far reaches of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And there is the heart of pride of Satan. Ezekiel 28 describes the heart of pride. He says, your heart, Satan, was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. And I, it's God speaking, cast you to the ground. And notice in each of these verses where the spiritual battleground was for Satan. I mean, here he is, perfect heaven in God's presence. The battleground was not around him. The battleground was where? It was within him. It was within his heart. Isaiah said, in his heart, Ezekiel reads, his heart was proud. The battleground for spiritual warfare, friends, is not in the physical church like this or not in your physical home or not just in the world. We don't battle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces, and that battleground is in our hearts. It's the same for Satan as it was for you and I. Satan is defeated. He is defeated by pride, and he's defeated by Christ on the cross. Christ died for our pride and defeated Satan, death, and hell. But Satan wants to destroy us. He can't take away our salvation as believers. He can't take away what God has given to us but he can draw us away from God to himself and to our own ways. Satan wants to destroy. He wants to destroy our marriages. He does that by attacking our hearts. He does that by attacking us with selfishness, with pride. I mean, how many, how many marriages have, have arguing and fighting and it results just by some little small problem that took place in the family, in the home? He attacks our hearts with this pride and with bitterness and with envy. How many churches have split over egos and and bitter rivals and slanderous gossip? 
How many individuals have been under the attack of Satan in, in their minds and their hearts and their will to doubt God, to, to, law, to fall after their own lusts and go after their own desires? I mean, how many people have walked from Christ or plunged their life into evil by giving their inner person up to, to mindless entertainment and to the lust of pornography or to the anxiety of the heart and the worry that can overcome a person? The point is Satan's attack takes place within the heart of a person. I don't really recommend this translation very often, but New Living Translation, I like how they translated this, 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. And, and the point is, it's, that's it right here. What Satan wants to do is he wants to keep you from knowing Christ. He wants to keep you from a sweet relationship with Jesus Christ. And he does that by attacking your mind with pride. And that's why we need to bring every thought into captivity, into the obedience of Christ. Pride is what caused the fall of Satan and his followers. Pride is what Satan tempts or tempted Adam and Eve with. Pride is the primary temptation Satan comes after us with. And a person who exalts themselves before God, above God, and before other people, is a person who's living in opposition for God, and therefore that is Satan's goal. He wants to get you there. He wants to keep you there. And so as we read 1 Peter chapter 5, it's important for us to understand the context of verses 1 through 7 as we lead up into this warning of this one, this adversary, we must understand what his tools are, and that is he deceives the heart with pride. So would you look at 1 Peter chapter 1, First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. In fact, let's do this. Let's stand together as we read God's word. First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. Our text this morning is actually verses 8 and 9, but I think it'll be helpful for you to understand this whole text as we lead up to this. First Peter chapter 5, verse 1 says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you are, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Let's pray. Father, we believe as your children that you have given us the words of God. That what we are reading here this morning, what we just read, are straight from your breath. It's breathed out by you. So I pray you'll help me. I need I need grace and wisdom to make sure that everything I'm saying is accurate according to your word. 
So I pray that will be the case this morning. And Lord, we all need hearts of grace that receive your words and live them by faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So how not to get eaten by the lion? Well, the answer, first of all, is to humble yourselves under the authority of God's protection. Humble yourselves under the authority of God's protection. Again, I'm not going to rehash the last couple weeks of verses 1 through 7, but you really can't teach on verses 8 and 9 without considering verses 1 through 7. A key to the spiritual protection of the sheep from the enemy is to put oneself under the care of God's protection. How does God protect us? What does God put in our life to have spiritual protection? Well, the Bible teaches there are really three things, or this text teaches there are really three things. God protects us in three ways. First of all, he puts elders or shepherds to oversee our souls. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, shepherd the flock of God, speaking to the elders, that is among you exercising oversight. So pastors are to care for your soul. They're to pray for your soul. They're to give counsel to you, warn you of spiritual dangers. They're to give you the word of God so you can be healthy, spiritually healthy. And then second, he gives you the local church. Look at verse 5. He says in verse 5, that you who are younger be subject to the elders Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. So this verse says that humility looks like putting on or putting yourself under the authority of a church and around a group of sheep or a group of believers that can encourage you. And then third, look at verse six, God provides spiritual protection by caring for you himself. In other words, he protects you by giving himself. Verse six instructs us to be humble before God and to trust the care of his divine providence. Look, it says in verse six, humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your cares, your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. So he, he gives himself as a protection. In other words, we humble ourselves under him and we cast our cares upon him and he protects us from from the lion. So the answer is humble ourselves under the authority of God's protection. God cares for his sheep by giving them himself as the chief shepherd, giving them under shepherds, and also giving them each other, the church. I think, just think of the imagery here of a flock of sheep. Think about if you go out to a, a place where there's sheep, think about all the sheep out there and they have to be kept together. There's, there's a protection and having a group of sheep together. They have shepherds who are protecting the sheep. And if one little lamb decides he's going to go out and go explore a little bit, and if there's lions on the hills, what's going to happen to that little lamb? He's toast, isn't he? Yeah, well, maybe not toast. Maybe he's, uh, he's dinner in another way. But there, there's safety in, how, in being under the care of shepherds. There's safety in, in being a part of the group. And in, I think, as I think about this text here, I think about our church and God has given us a wonderful gift of each other, of the church here. Lighthouse Bible Church is God's gift to you to help give you spiritual protection. And so we are to put ourselves under that. We need the church. We need each other, don't we? Yesterday I prayed with, or we had a bunch of men get together and we prayed together. Man, we need to pray like that, don't we, men? That was such a wonderful time of prayer. The ladies had a Bible study this past Tuesday. Ladies, you need each other. You cannot spiritually survive 
on your own. And if you think you can spiritually survive, listen to this, if you think you can spiritually survive without being a member of a church, then you are deceived. You're deceived. You're like that lone little sheep that's out there and you don't even realize the danger you're in. The, the, the mouth of Satan is right there next to you. He's sniffing you out. In fact, you might already be gobbled up. On your own, you are in grave danger. Many people think they don't need verses one through seven. They're deceived by their own pride to think they're fine on their own. They're safe with their little TV preacher there. They have the strength to stand on their own without God's people and God's protections. And so I, obviously you're here right now, so that's not you. But I would encourage you, if you know someone that has not attended in a while, or you meet someone that says that, says, you know, I don't, I don't need to go to church. I'm okay on my own. Would you, what would be the loving thing for you to do? What do you think the loving thing for you to do? To call them back to the protection of God's flock. Wouldn't that be the loving thing for us to do? And also to humble ourselves under the care of God and trust in him and his care. Cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. And then second, how do we not get eaten by the lion, spiritually speaking, and thrive as God's sheep? Be alert to the spiritual dangers. Be alert to the spiritual danger. Look at verse 8. He says, be sober, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, do you like watching National Geographic and watching those, those African or Savannah or whatever it is, you know, the, with the lions and the tigers and not the bears because that's not Africa? Oh, my. Or I think even Disney has some on now where they have these little animal shows you can watch. And there's something mesmerizing about watching a pride of lions as they stalk, you know, these gazelles, especially when that little gazelle gets off on its own and it's all by itself and these lions come right around there and they, they uh, gather around this and they sneak up and then they pounce and they grab it by the neck, pull it down, kill it, and they eat it. Now, how many actually do like watching that? Okay, so there you go. And some people are going, oh, I do not like watching that. But what Peter is doing here, he's trying to give us this, the sense of danger. There's, there's some danger out there. And of course, this is imagery here to help us understand the danger that we are in, the spiritual danger that we face. And what is that danger? What does verse 8 say our danger is? He says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. And what's the danger? He's seeking someone to devour. And so he's called here what? First, he's called your adversary. This is a, a legal term of someone who opposes someone else, like the attorney on the other side who's coming after you to put you in jail, right? It's a, it's a legal term for someone who opposes you. And it's the word that describes Satan and his hostility in this world towards God and his people. And who is he opposing? Who is Satan opposing? Well, primarily he is opposing God. But in our text, what does it say? He says, your adversary. So he's opposing you. He's opposing you. That means then what? That Satan hates you. He hates you. And he wants the worst for you. What is the worst for you? It's to be on his side, to live like him, to have a heart of pride that exalts himself up, to live in opposition to God. That's the worst, and that's what Satan wants for you. Remember verse 5, God opposes the proud. And Satan opposes you by luring you into the dark trap of pride. He opposes all of us 
And really, it's his best chance at opposing God. So he's your adversary. He's opposing you. And he's also called here what? The devil. The devil. The devil, his, that name means accuser or slanderer. Again, it's, it's a compound word in the Greek that diablos, you've heard that, diablos. So dia means through and balo means, I'm sorry, dia means uh, through and balo means throw. They're very similar words. So dia means through and balo means throw. In other words, it means to throw through. I need, I need some helpers up here. Let's see, does anyone want to help me? Okay, okay, Paul, come on up. I see him back there. Okay, come on up here. Okay, I need, I need two other helpers. I, 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 you want to come up? Anyone else want to come up? Okay, come on up here. Okay. You guys can, you guys can stand right over here, okay? Come on, come on over here. Ready to go, Mr. Paul. He's such a good sport here. Okay, these are, this, is, this is Paul Patingo. He's married, and uh, someday, hopefully, you'll have some children like this. So, yeah, right? Seven. Okay, Seven. Whoa. Okay, we got this recorded. Fast forward eight years from now, see what happens, okay? <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Does Sarah agree with that? Are you good with that? You're for 10? No, just kidding. <laughs> okay, that was, not, that was not her agreement. Okay. Satan likes to throw and slander. He likes to throw accusations and slander. And what he's trying to do, he's trying to split our, us from God. He wants us to, to, to split our relationship and destroy our fellowship with, with Christ. His goal is to destroy our, destroy our fellowship with God. And so what he does is he throws accusations out and tries to, to split us up. And this happens all the time in life, okay? So we decided to choose some people up here that weren't actually related to each other. But we're going to pre- pretend that Paul is a dad here, okay? And so if you have children this age, this age you know kind of what happens, right? You have one child over here. What's your name? Tyler. What's your name? Jared. Jared, okay. So Jared, you're going to go over there. And if you're a parent, you kind of know how this happens right there, Okay. And Eileen will come up to Daddy, and what does Eileen say to Daddy about Jared? Really nice things, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like, let me tell you how wonderful Jared is playing with me. You know what? No, what happens? We call that tattling, right? They come up, and they actually say really bad things, right? And so what Eileen is trying to do is Eileen will take some accusations she has about him. They might be true. They might not be true. And she basically tries to divide them, right? <laughs> And, and the point is, when a child does that, people do that in life, they try to throw accusations between relationships because they hope to divide that person so they can be closer to this person or get what they want, which is usually what a child does. Isn't that correct? That's how it works? Okay, you guys can be seated. Thank you so much. And this is common how the world works. I mean, if you're a, if you're a coworker, you have, if you have a coworker and you're in competition for a promotion, that person might go to your boss they might say some things behind your back. And why would they do something like that? Well, they want advantage for themselves. So if they can accuse you and bring you lower down the ladder, maybe that can bring you, them up, and they can likely get the promotion. This happens at work, in marriages, in churches, in politics, in Christian organizations. People try to destroy the reputation of someone else through slander or through gossip. And they think if they can divide those people away from themselves, they can gather other people to themselves and they can gain their trust, uh, the trust of the other people and, and therefore they can accomplish their work. In other words, 
They slander to destroy. That's the means in the end. And that's actually what it means to be the devil. That's what the devil does. It's the work of Satan. What does Christ do? He reconciles to restore. So I like to think of it that way. When I see relationships and I see churches and I see problems going on, I ask myself the question, is the goal in this situation to slander and gossip and destroy, to destroy this person? Or is it actually to reconcile so you can restore? I think this right here is the key way you can discern if Christ is in a situation or not. If you are in a marriage or a job or a church and people are trying to gain advantage through slander, then I think it's a pretty, pretty clear sign that the devil's in that. But Christ-centered marriages, Christ-centered relationships, Christ-centered churches try to reconcile to restore. This is how the devil works. I mean, the world does it because they follow after their father, the devil. The devil tries to throw accusations in between us and God to destroy our relationship with God. I mean, think about Adam and Eve. They have this perfect fellowship with the Lord, this sweet fellowship in the Garden of Eden, and the devil comes and he slanders the name of God to them. Remember that? In Genesis chapter 3, he said, did God actually say? In other words, is God actually telling the truth? And he's basically saying what? God's a liar to you. He's slandering God's name. For what purpose? He doesn't want that sweet relationship between God and Adam and Eve. For God knows, Satan said, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You can't believe God. He's actually withholding something really good from you. He's not really doing good for you. So he's slandering the name of God. That's slander right there. The devil did this to Job. The devil accused God of being weak, of being kind, too kind to Job. He said to Job, have you not put a hedge? I'm sorry, Job said, or Satan said to God, let me get that right. Satan said to God, have you not put a hedge around him, that's Job, and his house, and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. So Satan is accusing God of pampering Job. The only reason Job is following you, God, is because, look it, you're being super kind to him. Can I just say as a side note too, a lot of people pray this prayer to God that Satan said, you know, put a hedge of protection around. I would not recommend praying that. It's something Satan prayed. In other words, some people say, God, put a hedge of protection around this family. Well, that's actually what Satan uses, slander God. So if you pray that, I would probably recommend crossing that out of your prayers. Don't pray what Satan accuses God of. The devil then used Job's friends to slander God. So there's Job. He, he's suffering, and his, his friends come, and they're kind of like little devils, and they slander God, and they do it in a very pious way, of course. It looks good. In fact, if you read through Job, I've, I've heard of people that will um, have their life verses out of Job, you know, and you look through it, and you're like, oh, your life verse is actually from one of his friends who were actually speaking in a way that was slandering the name of God in a very pious way. I probably should pick those verses better, too. But the devil slanders, slanders God. He slanders God's name and God's work to unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. In their case, speaking of those without Christ, the God of this world, that's little g, that's Satan who tries to act like a God but is not God, 
has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God. So the devil, uh, he perpetuates lies about the character of God to deceive people and to keep them spiritually blind to the true motives and the work of Christ. The devil doesn't want people to see that Jesus Christ is the sufficient sacrifice. They don't want them to see. He doesn't want them to see that Jesus Christ is the Holy One. And so what he does is he slanders God, and maybe not directly, but he does it through ideas. Ideas like this. God doesn't really care about your sin. As long as you try hard, as long as you're good enough for God, that's all that counts. What's that right there? That's slander against the holiness of God. No, actually, God is holy. He cares about your sin. He cares about your sin so much that he actually is separate from you because of your sin. In fact, he cares about your sin so much. Without faith in Christ, you will spend eternity away from God in hell. He slanders with ideas like this. Christ's work is not enough. You need to do something more to earn God's favor. Oh yeah, Jesus died on the cross, but you know what? You really got to do this or that. Maybe you, should, maybe you should give in the back. Maybe you should sit down with a priest and, and you should confess your sins. Or maybe if you do all these really good works, maybe Christ's work isn't enough. And it's slandering the work of Christ. Actually, Jesus Christ's work is sufficient. It's the only way that we can have grace to save us and forgive us. So the main line of attack of Satan is to oppose God by slandering the name of God. Because what Satan wants more than anything else in this world, he wants to divide us from God and our relationship to him. We just finished a really turbulent and very sad political year. In politics, there are many people, though, that are hired to find dirt on people. Do they have a name? I don't even know. But, I mean, there's people, there's a whole profession out there that just goes out to find dirt. And sometimes it's true. Many times it's not true. It doesn't even matter for them, does it? Because what's their whole point? Why do you find dirt on a candidate? Well, because you want to sling dirt at that, or as they say in politics, you throw mud at them, right? Because you want that candidate to look bad so that it separates the, the favorability of the voters from them. So if you can make that person look bad in the view of voters, they won't vote for them very well, right? And that's kind of, they won't vote for them likely. And that's, that's kind of the idea of what Satan does here. Satan, he slanders to divide. So we won't trust the Lord. So we won't follow the Lord. Revelation 12, 10 says, the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Satan is the accuser of us. He actually will stand before for Christ and he will accuse us. And again, his goal is to try to throw something between us and God so that God will reject us. And he accuses us as sinners. And you know what? His accusation is true. We are sinners. He accuses us as ones who deserve to be separated from God forever. And you know what? His accusation is true. We deserve to be separated from God forever because of our sin. But for those who have trusted Jesus Christ, Jesus stands there at our defense. He's our high priest. He's interceding for us. And he presents his work on our behalf. And he stands before Satan, the devil, the adversary, and he says, you're right. They do deserve eternal punishment. You're right. They do deserve to be condemned for their sin. But I took their place. I died on the cross for their sin. 
I have given them my righteousness. Their faith is in me. The Holy Trinity has an eternal covenant with each child of God. And you cannot break that, Satan. He can stand and accuse all he wants to. But for the children of God, they are forever, forever linked, forever reconciled to Christ because of the work of Christ. One of my favorite verses, Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, he, that's Jesus, is able to save. And that's actually, those are present tense verbs. The idea is that he can keep saving. He keeps us saved. So he stands in the presence. Jesus Christ stands in heaven and he keeps us saved. He keeps interceding for us, for those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. In church, Satan cannot reverse the work of God for you. He cannot reverse the work of God for you. You might feel condemned. You might feel like you should go to hell for your sin. And you know what? It's, it's true. <laughs> like you should. But you know what? You do not have to believe Satan's lies because he can't change your position as son and daughter. You are held in the hand of God. You are secure forever. You have been giving given eternal life. You have not been given temporary life or life that starts and ends and starts and ends and starts and ends. It's eternal. It goes on forever. And you have been given that gift. And we can trust that our Father loves us and nothing can separate us from that love. But what Satan wants to do for believers is he wants to try to separate our hearts from Christ. Christ will never give up on us but he wants to draw our, Satan wants to draw our heart away from the Father. So look at verse 8, the very end. He says he's seeking someone to devour. He's seeking someone to devour. What does that mean? Literally, it means to swallow up. So what does it mean that Satan wants to swallow us up? Well, first of all, let me say what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Satan and his demons are what you see in the movies. There's so many horrific, no pun intended, but horrific horror movies out there. And a lot of those horror movies have to do with demons. And, it's, and they're scary. And I would not recommend watching them at all. And, but I want to say that Satan's work is not like what you see in the movies. I don't know about you, but I get asked by people most of the time. They're unbelievers. They ask, you know, about demons and how they work. And it's not like how the movies are. Satan and his minions are not trying, as believers, they're not trying to scare you. That's not their main goal in this world. Now, if you're an unbeliever and you give your heart over to Satan, you should be scared. I've helped people who have been, particularly people who are involved in drugs, and, uh, and they have given their heart over to Satan. They are afraid. They are scared out of their mind. You know what? They should be scared out of their mind because a life given over to Satan is a life that's on its way to hell. And that is the scariest thing ever. But for the believer, Satan's number one goal is, is not to scare you. It's to destroy your fellowship with God. Because that's the worst thing that can happen to you. The worst thing that can happen to you is not for you to be scared in your bed, curled up. The worst thing for you is for you not to be in relationship with God. To not fellowship with him, to not trust him, not place your faith in him, to not trust his word. And so, so Satan works. He works through your fleshly desires. He works through this world and the ideas of this world. And his goal is he, he wants to destroy your faith. So we must be alert. What does he say in verse uh, 8 of chapter 5? 
We are to be sober-minded. So again, showing us that this battlefield is in our mind, it's in our hearts. Be watchful, be alert, be alert in your thinking, look out for danger. And so Peter's instruction then is for us to have this mindset that is always on the alert to the spiritual dangers of temptation. Every day that we wake up, we need to turn our minds on to the reality of what's going to happen to us that day. You are going to face spiritual battles, spiritual temptation, and Satan wants to tempt you to exalt yourself in pride. And if you're spiritually asleep or you lean on your own flesh, you're probably going to lose those battles. Oh, I should say probably. You are going to lose those battles. So we need to be alert. We need to wake up. And then thirdly, how do you not get eaten by the lion, but thrive as God's sheep? Resist the lion with faith in Christ. Look at verse nine. Resist him, that's the adversary, Satan the lion, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. The next command he gives us in regard to this spiritual war is to resist. Now, notice our strategy against Satan is not to go after him, not to try to find him and defeat him. Satan is actually already a defeated foe. Christ defeated him on the cross. What Satan is trying to do is it's really a last-ditch effort to get all he can while he can because his time is short. Verse 9, though, clearly tells us what our response is to be to these satanic attacks. That's what? It's resist him firm in the faith. Some Christians are preoccupied with finding Satan. You know, they look for him in buildings. They try to cast him out of furniture. They, they get holy. I had a guy come by a couple weeks ago and ask if he could have some holy water. They, they try to have these little rituals or try to have chants or charms to try to get Satan to flee. But that's not what you see here. That's not what he's saying to do. In fact, you won't see that in the New Testament. <laughs> that's not the way we approach Satan. You don't need to find him, okay? I think that his minions and his temptations will find you. You don't have to go out and look for him. We're not to try to go conquer Satan. We're to stand firm against him. So the question then is, how do we do that? Like, how do we stand firm against him so that he will flee and he'll, he won't overtake us? Well, we'll just read James 4, 6, and 8 as we consider this text. Because I think this, these are similar parallel passages James 4, 6 says, but God gives grace. Therefore, it says, the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Recognize that verse? So what? What are we to do? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. There's humility before God. Resist the devil. Stand firm against the devil. And he will what? He will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to to you. So what causes Satan to flee? It's when we submit our hearts in humility before Christ. And when we submit our hearts in humility, what does Christ give us? He gives us grace. Satan, he hates grace. He flees from grace. Grace to Satan is like light to a bat. He can't stand it. 
And if you have a heart full of pride, then your heart is like sweet nectar to Satan. It's like an invitation. Pride's like an invitation to come, for Satan to come and visit. But a humble heart before Christ, full of grace, is like a flaming fire to an approaching lion. It repels Satan. And so really what our response to Satan and his temptations is to do, or is to be is what? Is to submit our heart to Jesus Christ, to trust him, allow his grace to flood our heart. That's how Satan flees right there. And so he says, resist him, what? Firm in your faith. Faith is the, the link that connects us in fellowship to God. Faith is trust in God, in his word. And faith is what really it means for us to live in a close relationship with him. In fact, before we end here, would you go over to Luke chapter 22? Luke 22. In Luke 22, we find Jesus, remember he's with his disciples. They're at the Lord's table the night before he was to be crucified. What was the greatest concern of the disciples that night? It was themselves, right? Look down in verse 24, Luke twenty-two, twenty-four. 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Well, that lion, Satan, was already in that room, and he was licking his chops trying to go after those guys. And frankly, he was winning, wasn't he? Look at verse 31. Jesus warned Peter that this was the work of Satan. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. He was essentially saying, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, and he has marked you, Peter. He's after you. You're on his list. So what did Peter do? Oh, I need to wake up. <laughs> what did he do? He's like, oh, no, I'll be fine. I'm okay. He didn't believe the word of Jesus. So what did Jesus pray? Look at verse 32. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. The problem Peter had was that Satan was attacking his heart with pride, wasn't, wasn't he? What was the answer from Jesus? What was the answer for Peter? What did Jesus pray for for Peter? Now you would think he would pray that Peter would have a heart of humility, wouldn't you think that would be the opposite? I mean, he's prideful. They're all exalting themselves. and so. But actually, he prays for what? He prays for faith. I'm praying for your faith. Well, why is that? Well, because humility and faith go hand in hand. They're, they're two sides, if you want to say, of the same coin. Humility is the door to faith. Humility leads to faith. Think back at 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, submit yourself to God. And then he says, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. In other words, humble yourself for the Lord. And that leads to what? Praying to faith in, in Christ. Peter's heart, though, was full of pride. And his heart of pride exalted himself so that he had faith in what? What did Peter have faith in? Himself. I'm okay. And therefore, he was blind, spiritually blind to what was actually happening to him. But Christ's prayer was that Peter would soon humble himself and then he would look in faith to Jesus Christ and trust his word. Look down in verse 40. They went to that garden. 
Peter was unaware of the spiritual war that was taking place. Luke 22, verse 40. And when he came to the place, Jesus, that is, said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Matthew records, watch and pray. Notice those two commands. Watch, that's be alert and pray. What is that? That's faith in Christ. Get in your knees, Peter. Get in your knees. Cry out to me. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 5. And notice 1 Peter chapter 5 in verse 8. He says, be sober and what? And watch. Look at verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 9. He says, stand firm in faith. So Peter was passing on to us a lesson he learned, a lesson he learned in failure. He didn't watch. He wasn't alert to the spiritual realities around him. And he did not grab hold of Christ and his word in faith. How different would it have been for Peter if he would have been aware of the temptation of pride in his heart? How different would it have been for Peter if he would have believed the word of Christ Oh, Jesus, you said something. If you say it's true, I trust it. But he didn't. How different would it have been for Peter if he got on his knees in that garden with Jesus Christ and cried out for help? But he didn't. He slept. The Lord Jesus knew the thing Peter needed was to trust him. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Church, how different? How different would our marriages be Children, how different would your relationship be with your parents? Employees, how different would your interactions be at work if you lived a life aware of the spiritual attacks around you? If you lived a life of faith in Christ, reading his word, listening to his word, trusting his word, and calling on him in prayer. I think part of the problem you have when you come to something like this, when I come to something like this, is go, okay, that was, that was Peter, and this is him writing to these churches. What does this look like in real life? So I thought, I'm going to conclude just going from younger to older. I want you, want you to think about this. What does it look like for you to be aware, to be watching, awake to spiritual realities, the spiritual temptations, but also to trust in the Lord? So we're going to start with the kids, okay? If you're a kid in here, you should listen up right now. I want you to imagine you're on the ground and you're playing with some kind of toys, maybe Legos or something like that. So you're playing on the ground with your little Legos, little plastic things that you know everyone really loves and they made a lot of money with those things. And you have a sibling that comes up or a friend that comes up and they sit down and they want to play with those too. Now, if you were aware of the spiritual temptations, what would you think about in regard to those little Legos at that moment? You might be aware that you're going to want to love those Legos more than that person. Maybe you're, you're, maybe you're going to think to yourself that I want to protect these Legos so much that I'll do anything it can, I can to make sure that this person doesn't touch my Legos. Maybe even rip their head off. Maybe scream at them. Maybe punch them, right? Now, you guys are laughing because uh, some of you see that every day in your house, okay? In other words, if you were completely blind to the spiritual realities, you would, you would just go ahead and do that. And that's why most children, many children do that. That's how they live their life with their siblings, don't they? But if you were aware of it, you would recognize, you know what? This might be a temptation for me to exalt myself and put this other person down because I love Legos more than I love God and this person. And then what would it look like to have faith? You might say to yourself, might think, Lord, I trust that you have given me everything I have, and that includes Legos. 
maybe for a little child, maybe in your mind, you think at that moment, this, this is what you should be thinking in your mind. Lord, help me to remember that everything I have is from you. Like little pieces of plastic, even that has been given from God to do what? What has God given us all things? What is, why has he given us everything we have? So we can give to others. He shares with us, so we can share with others. And so for a child on the ground with those Legos right there, aware, spiritually aware would be like, I'm tempted right now. And Christ has called me by faith to share with other people, to love people with little plastic pieces, right? Or, or think about maybe you're a teenager. Maybe you're a, a teenager and your parents won't let you do something or won't let you have something. And so you are in a situation like that. And if you were spiritually aware, you would recognize, you know what? Right now, Satan wants me to exalt myself above my parents and reject their authority. And, and that's a danger for me. Like, that's not a good place to be as a child. That's going to put me in opposition to God. It's going to put me in opposition to my parents. That's not where I want to be. And so maybe as a teenager, you recognize that you're spiritually aware of that and recognizing that and you pray and ask God, God, help me to follow you by putting myself under the authority of my parents. My parents aren't perfect. They don't do everything right. But I know this, that you put them in my life, Lord. And so I want to trust you that if they say this is what's best for me, even though I don't see it, I'm going to trust that's true. So I'm going to live by faith in that right there. So you're, you're living with spiritual awareness and you're living by putting yourself under the authority of Christ in his word. Maybe you're a, a lady. So let's go up the chain here. Maybe you're a lady who loves to talk with your friends, right? You go out with co for coffee or whatever it is. It's not really coffee. It's usually a bunch of sugar and a little bit of coffee, but whatever. You go out with your friends and you like to sit there with your friends and talk to your friends. And, and you like to talk about other people. I mean, everyone likes to talk about other people. So you talk about your in-laws, talk about your husband. You talk about some people at church. And being spiritually aware, you know that you're going to be tempted to speak negatively about them so you can exalt yourself up. You're going to know you're going to be tempted to have corrupt words come out of your mouth to try to corrupt those relationships so that person looks, thinks of you as a better person. But, but faith in the Lord recognizes that I'm to be ministering grace. I'm to be building other people up. I'm to be building this person up. So I'm going to ask God, God, help me right now to, to speak words of grace. Help me to build others up with their words. Let me just do one last one. Maybe you're a man and you're at work. Maybe you're working closely with different people and maybe someone of the opposite gender and this, this, maybe a woman comes up to you and you have a good relationship, good coworker, but then something starts changing. She starts nudging you. She starts touching you. You start nudging her. There's little looks back and forth. You start thinking in your mind, hmm, I like this person a little bit more than just a coworker. And you maybe even start going down the road or start thinking, what if you start recognizing that this is going to be a bad road. And spiritual, spiritually aware, being spiritually aware would basically mean that you would say, you know what, this is not something I should go down. Like this is a temptation of destruction for me. And, and what does faith in Christ look like? I think it's trusting that God says that you're to keep your covenant with your wife. Maybe it, for you, you say, God, help me to tell my wife when I get home about these, these struggles I'm having at work. Help me be honest about this with her. Help me to trust you, Lord, that, to be faithful in my heart and what I think about this person and how I interact with this person. Help me to choose the path of blessing and so on and so on. The point is, is that this is the reality of what we live in. Satan wants to destroy children and their relationship with their siblings and kids and their uh, teens and their relationship with their parents and marriages and friendships and churches like ours. 
And every day we're facing these temptations from Satan that to have our hearts be exalted in pride, to destroy relationships around us, and most importantly, to destroy a relationship with God. And so last, remember you are not alone. I'm not going to really spend any time on this, just to say, look at verse 9. He says, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. The old saying goes, misery loves company. I don't know about that. But I would say this, misery loves to have people around you to pray for you. In other words, when you're in a terrible time of temptation, you need other people. Sometimes it's the, it's the thought that there's other people going through this. <laughs> like, I'm not alone in this. Like, I'm not the only person in the world struggling with this. And I think this is a good opportunity for us to remember that you are not alone. So how to not get eaten by the lion, but thrive as God's sheep. Humble yourself under the authority of God's protection. Be, be alert to the spiritual danger. Resist the lion with faith in Christ. Remember, you're not alone. If you're a person here and you're without Christ, I plead with you to come to him. Come to him. Satan would love to keep your heart from Christ in a relationship with him. And maybe even in your heart right now, all these ideas are coming to your mind of why you should not come to Christ, why you should not submit your heart to Christ, why you should not trust in Jesus Christ. And I'm just going to tell you, those are the temptations of Satan to keep you from Christ. So let me plead with you to come to Jesus Christ today. In church, we need to live this life of humility before Christ so grace can flood in our heart and we can trust Jesus Christ and Satan will flee. Let's pray. Father, I pray a prayer right now for myself, for my family, for our church, for each of us in here as brothers and sisters in Christ, because we are under the attack of Satan every day. And oh, how blind we can be sometimes to, to our own hearts and the temptations of Satan upon our hearts. And oh boy, Lord, he wants to destroy me, he wants to destroy our elders. He wants to destroy our marriages. And all we have to do is give in to him. But Lord, you want us to humble ourselves before you and trust your word. So I pray for each person in here who claims to be a follower of Christ. Lord, I pray this morning, even as we end here in, in prayer and song, Lord, I pray that you will give us hearts of faith that trust you with all our heart. We don't lean upon our own understanding. So Lord, I pray for that this morning. I pray for the person in here who's still running from Christ. I pray that you'll open their spiritual eyes to see they are in need of the Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're actually going to